0: section 49 of the rise and fall of the confederate government volume 2 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by k hand the rise and fall of the confederate government volume 2 by jefferson davis part 4 chapter 56 Final subjugation of the Confederate States Result of the Contest A Simple Process of Restoration Rejected by the United States Government A Forced Union The President's Proclamation Examined The Guarantee Not to Destroy Provisional Governors Their Duties Voters First Movement Made in Virginia Government Set Up Proceedings, Action of So-Called Legislature, Constitutional Amendment, Case of Dr. Watson, Civil Rights Bill, Storm Brewing, Congress Refuses to Admit Senators and Representatives to Seats, Committee on Reconstruction, Freedmen's Bureau, Report of Committee, Fourth Amendment to the Constitution extent of ratification another step taken by Congress military commanders appointed over Confederate states with unlimited powers reconstruction by the bayonet course of proceedings required two governments for each state major generals appointed further acts of Congress PROCEEDINGS COMMENCED BY THE MAJOR GENERAL AT RICHMOND CIVIL GOVERNOR APPOINTED SO-CALLED STATE CONVENTION SO-CALLED LEGISLATURE ITS ACTION MEASURES REQUIRED BY CONGRESS FOR THE ENFRANCHISEMENT OF NEGROES ADOPTED BY THE SO-CALLED LEGISLATURE ASSERTION OF SENATOR GARRETT DAVIS STATE REPRESENTED IN CONGRESS when the Confederate soldiers laid down their arms and went home, all hostilities against the power of the government of the United States ceased. The powers delegated in the compact of 1787 by these states, i.e. by the people thereof, to a central organization to promote their general welfare, had been used for their devastation and subjugation it was conceded as the result of the contest that the united states government was stronger in resources than the confederate government and that the confederate states had not achieved their independence nothing remained to be done but for the sovereigns the people of each state to assert their authority and restore order if the principle of the sovereignty of the people the cornerstone of all our institutions had survived and was still in force it was necessary only that the people of each state should reconsider their ordinances of secession, and again recognize the Constitution of the United States as the supreme law of the land. This simple process would have placed the Union on its original basis, and have restored that which had ceased to exist, the Union by consent. Unfortunately, such was not the intention of the conqueror. The Union of free wills and brotherly hearts, under a compact ordained by the people, was not his object henceforth there was to be established a union of force sovereignty was to pass from the people to the government of the united states and to be upheld by those who had furnished the money and the soldiers for the war the first step required therefore in the process for the reconstruction of the new enforced union was to prepare those who had been the late champions of the sovereignty of the people to become suitable subjects under the new sovereign standing defenceless stripped of their property and exposed as it was asserted to the penalties of insurrection on the one hand and that of treason on the other the president of the united states mr andrew johnson who as vice-president became president after the death of mr lincoln on may twenty ninth eighteen sixty five thus addressed them to the end, therefore, that the authority of the government of the United States may be restored, and that peace, order, and freedom may be re-established, I, Andrew Johnson, President of the United States, do proclaim and declare that I hereby grant to all persons who have directly or indirectly participated in the existing rebellion, except as hereinafter accepted, amnesty and pardon with restoration of all rights of property except as to slaves and except in cases where legal proceedings under the laws of the united states providing for the confiscation of property of persons engaged in the rebellion have been instituted but on the condition nevertheless that every such person shall take and subscribe the following oath or affirmation and thenceforward keep and maintain said oath inviolate in which oath shall be registered for permanent reservation and shall be of the tenor and effect following to wit i blank, blank, do solemnly swear or affirm in presence of almighty god that i will henceforth faithfully support and defend the constitution of the united states and the union thereunder and that I will in like manner abide by and faithfully support all laws and proclamations which have been made during the existing rebellion with reference to the emancipation of slaves, so help me God. The permission to take this oath was withheld from large classes of citizens. It will be seen that there are two stipulations in this oath, the first faithfully to support the Constitution of the United States and the Union thereunder, this comprises obedience to the laws made in conformity to the constitution and is all that is requisite in the simple oath of allegiance of an american citizen the second stipulation is to abide by and faithfully support all laws and proclamations which have been made during the existing rebellion with reference to the emancipation of slaves what need was thereof this second stipulation because the laws are not enacted nor the proclamation issued under any grant of power in the constitution or under its authority now the exercise of a power by a government for which it has no constitutional authority is not only a usurpation but it destroys the sanction of all written instruments of government also what has become of the unalienable right of property which all the state governments were created to protect and preserve where was the sovereignty of the people under these proceedings Yet the Confederate citizen was required to bind himself by an oath to abide by and faithfully support all these usurpations, the alternative being to resist the government or to aid and abet a violation of the Constitution. Meanwhile, each of the late Confederate states was occupied by a military force of the government of the United States, and military orders were the supreme law, and that government thereby proceeded to establish a state organization based on the principle of its own sovereignty in the first place the president of the united states issued a proclamation in such terms as to be applicable to each of the confederate states wherever its affairs were in such process of subjugation as to permit the commencement of the proposed organization this proclamation begins by setting forth four propositions as the basis of his authority first the constitution declares that the united states shall guarantee to every state in the union a republican form of government and protect each against invasion and domestic violence second the president is commander-in-chief of the army and navy as well as chief civil executive officer and bound to take care that the laws be faithfully executed third the rebellion in its revolutionary progress deprived the people of all civil government Fourth, it becomes necessary and proper to enforce and carry out the obligations of the United States to the people of the state in securing it in the enjoyment of a republican form of government. Therefore, etc. These propositions call for a notice as well because of their fallacy as their enormity. The third declares that the so-called rebellion in its progress deprived the people of each Confederate state of all civil government. There was a government over each Confederate state, then existing and in full operation. It was, in all its internal relations, the same government which existed when the state was a member of the Union, whereby it was recognized by the government of the United States and by the other states as a lawful and Republican state government. It had been created by the free consent of the people of the state, and they had defended it with their lives and their fortunes. It had been denied by the government of the United States that any one of the Confederate States was a foreign state or outside the Union by its secession. It was therefore neither in law nor in fact any foundation for the assertion that the so-called rebellion had deprived the people of each Confederate state of all civil government. Having thus stripped each Confederate state of all civil government, it was asserted that the Constitution declares that the United States shall guarantee to each state a Republican form of government— but to guarantee is not to create to organize or to bring into existence this can be done for a state government only by the free and unconstrained action of the whole people of a state the creation of such a government is beyond the powers of the government of the united states as has already been shown after a Republican government has been instituted by the people, the Constitution requires the United States to guarantee its existence and thereby forbids them or their government to overthrow it and to set up a creature of its own. The duty to guarantee commands the preservation of that which already exists. Such were the governments of the Confederate States before the war and after the war. Thus, the power granted in the Constitution to preserve and guarantee state governments was perverted to overthrow and destroy Republican governments, and to erect in their places military governors, legislatures, and judicial tribunals. The third proposition is that the President is Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy and the Chief Civil Executive. His troops already occupied each of these states and held the people in subjection. His proclamation was therefore merely a military order from the hand of the conqueror, everything which he can do under such a character partakes of the nature, simply and solely, of martial law. Therefore he proceeds under the fourth proposition wherein it becomes necessary and proper to carry out the obligations of the United States to the people of each Confederate state, in securing them in the enjoyment of a Republican form of government. The American people were now about to witness, on an extensive scale, the tyrannical experiment of instituting Republican governments by the process of martial law they had declared it to be a self-evident truth that it was the right of the people to alter or to abolish it their government and to institute a new government laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness this principle of the sovereignty of the people was now rejected and the sovereignty of fleets and armies was substituted now therefore says the commander-in-chief of the army and navy and the chief civil executive officer of the united states in obedience to the high and solemn duties imposed upon me by the constitution of the united states and for the purposes of enabling the loyal people of said state or states to organize a state government whereby justice may be established domestic tranquillity restored and loyal citizens protected in all the rights of life liberty and prosperity i do hereby appoint blank blank provisional governor of the state it will be here noticed that all the proceedings are undertaken for the sake of the loyal persons in the state who is to decide what persons are loyal he who issues the military order the president and his agent the provisional governor and they naturally will decide those to be loyal who support and obey their orders the free assent and dissent which are the basis of the validity of every political action under our system are unknown in this case the duty of the provisional governor is declared in the proclamation to be to prescribe such rules and regulations as may be necessary and proper for convening a convention composed of delegates to be chosen by that portion of the people of the state who are loyal to the united states and no others for the purpose of altering and amending the constitution thereof in the third of the four propositions laid down as the basis of authority for the President's proceedings above mentioned, it is declared that the so-called rebellion deprived the people of the State of all civil government, but here it is made the first duty of the provisional Governor to procure a convention of loyal persons to alter and amend the Constitution of the State. Thus it seems that there was a State in existence and a Constitution in full vigor, notwithstanding the above declaration of the President to the contrary. This was that Constitution of the State which was in force during that long and peaceful period through which the Constitution of the United States was observed, and constitutional laws enacted. Now it was to be altered and amended from what the sovereign people of those days had ordained it to be, at the command, and to conform to the views of another sovereign. The nature of those alterations and amendments will be stated hereafter. This convention was to possess the authority to exercise all the powers necessary to restore the state to its constitutional relations with the federal government. It was further provided that no person should vote unless he had taken the amnesty oath mentioned on a previous page and was a qualified voter previous to the succession of the state. The convention or the subsequent legislature was to prescribe the qualification of all voters afterward. A power, says the President, the people of the several states composing the Federal Union have rightfully exercised from the origin of the government to the present time. The proclamation then continued, and I do hereby direct, first, that the military commander of the department and all officers and persons in the military and naval service aid and assist the said provisional government in carrying into effect this proclamation, and they are enjoined to abstain from, in any way, hindering, impeding, or discouraging loyal people from the organization of a state government as herein authorized. The proclamation closed with instructions to the secretary of each department of the government to proceed to put in operation his department within the limits of the state. The first movement for the restoration of the Confederate States to the Union under subjugation was commenced in Virginia. Richmond was occupied by the forces of the United States government, and the authority of all state officers elected during the war was annulled. Affairs remained in this position until May 9, 1865, when the President of the United States issued an order declaring all the acts and proceedings of the political, military, and civil organizations in the state which had been in insurrection against the United States to be null and void, and that all persons who should attempt to exercise any authority as under the late state or Confederate officers should be deemed and taken in as rebellion, etc. At this time, Francis H. Pierpont, who had assumed to exercise the office of governor of virginia over ten counties around alexandria was recognized by the president as the true governor of the state he was aided to remove the seat of his government from alexandria to richmond and there maintained by the military force no hostile opposition however was anywhere manifested while at alexandria delegates from the ten counties had assembled in convention and assumed to amend the state constitution and the little so-called legislative body had undertaken to pass various acts of importance. The so-called governor, in presenting a summary of them, concluded by saying, Thus state sovereignty, the status of the African race, the armed resistance to the government of the United States, are disposed of. An election for a new legislature and state officers was held on October 12th, all were allowed to vote who had not held office under the state, government, or the Confederacy during the war, after they had taken the amnesty oath. The so-called legislature assembled and entered upon the regulation of all the affairs of the state. A general act of vagrancy was passed, whereupon the Major General in Command issued an order that no magistrate, civil officer, or other person shall, in any way or manner, apply or attempt to apply, the provisions of the said statute to any colored persons in this department. At the municipal election in Richmond, the mayor, attorney, and superintendent of the poor, elected, were persons who had held office under the Confederate States. They were not allowed by the military authority to qualify, and subsequently declined. In 1865, the Congress of the United States passed an act which provided that the following amendment to the Constitution should be submitted to the legislatures of the several states for ratification or rejection. Section 1 neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to its jurisdiction. Section 2. Congress shall have full power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. 1. Dr. James L. Watson was tried for killing a Negro in Rockbridge County and acquitted. Major General Schofield in command of the military forces of the department immediately ordered his arrest and trial by a military commission on the assembling of the commission a writ of habeas corpus was sued out of the circuit court of richmond in behalf of watson and served on the general in his answer he declined compliance with the writ saying dr watson is held for trial by military commission under the authority of the act of congress of july sixteenth eighteen sixty six which act directs and requires the President, through the Commissioner and officers of the Freedmen's Bureau, to exercise military jurisdiction over all cases and questions concerning the free enjoyment of the right to have full and equal benefit of all laws and proceedings concerning personal liberty, personal security, etc., by all citizens, without respect to race or color or previous condition of slavery, of the states whose constitutional relations to the government of the United States have been discontinued by the rebellion and have not been restored in the meantime the united states attorney general having examined the case and reported that in his opinion the military commission had not competent jurisdiction the president thereupon directed that the commission be dissolved and the prisoner discharged without delay meantime congress had passed an act known as the civil rights bill and a case came before the circuit court at alexandria in which one of the parties offered to produce negro evidence the judge thomas ruled that, inasmuch as the state laws of Virginia forbade the introduction of Negro testimony in civil suits to which white men alone were parties, the evidence of the Negro was inadmissible, and that Congressional legislation could not impair the right of the states to decide what classes of persons were competent to testify in her courts. A storm was now brewing which was soon to involve the President and Congress in open conflict. The reader will remember that during the period in which these proceedings took place in Virginia— Similar ones occurred in all the remaining Confederate states. Not only in Virginia, but in several of the other states, some persons had been voted for as members of Congress, but in no case had they been admitted to seats. This was one of the measures taken by Congress to indicate its disapproval of the President's plan for the treatment of the late Confederate states. The difficulties that now arose between the President and Congress had reference entirely to the affairs of the Confederate states. The plan of the president left the Negroes to the care of the states alone after the establishment of their emancipation. Congress desired them to be made American citizens, secure in all the rights of freemen and voters. The refusal to admit senators and representatives to Congress from the Confederate states served to arrest the operation of the president's plans to hold these states in abeyance. No compromise could be made between the two each appealed to the constitution forgetful that each had sustained all its ruthless violations during the last four years congress therefore commenced an independent action and in its reckless course sought unsuccessfully to rid itself of the president by impeachment its first act at the commencement of the session in december eighteen sixty five was the appointment by a large majority in each house of a joint committee of fifteen to which was referred all questions relating to the conditions and manner in which Congress would recognize the late Confederate States as members of the Union. Meantime, the credentials of all persons sent as representatives and senators from them were laid upon the table in each house, there to remain until the final action of the Committee of Fifteen. This was followed by the passage, in February 1866, of an Act to Establish a Bureau for the Relief of Freedmen, Refugees, and Abandoned Lands it proposed to establish military jurisdiction over all parts of the United States containing refugees and freedmen. This bill was vetoed by the President and passed over his veto. In March, an act was passed to protect all persons in the United States in their civil rights and furnish the means of their vindication. The first section declared all persons born in the United States and not subject to any foreign power, excluding Indians not taxed, to be citizens of the United States, and enumerates the rights to be enjoyed by those so declared to be citizens. The second section affords discriminating protection to colored persons in the full enjoyment of all the rights secured to them by the preceding section. This bill was vetoed by the President and passed over his veto. On June 8, 1866, a majority and a minority report were made by the Committee of Fifteen. Meanwhile, a report had been made from the same committee at a previous date in the form of an amendment to the Constitution, which was debated and amended in each House and finally passed by the requisite majority in each. Thus was to be secured the political support and votes of the Negroes, who were expected to be the controlling citizens of the late Confederate States. The amendment to the Constitution was now submitted to the legislatures of all the States to be valid as a part of the Constitution when ratified by three-fourths in the following form. Article, Section 1. All persons born or naturalized in the United States, and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, are citizens of the United States, and of the State wherein they reside. No State shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any State deprive any person of life, liberty, or property, without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Section 2. Representatives shall be apportioned among the several states according to their respective numbers, counting the whole number of persons in each state, excluding Indians, not taxed. But, when the right to vote at any election for the choice of electors for President and Vice-President of the United States, representatives in Congress, the executive and judicial officers of a state, or the members of the legislature thereof, is denied to any of the male inhabitants of such state, being twenty-one years of age, and citizens of the United States, or in any way abridged except for participation in rebellion or other crime the basis of representation therein shall be reduced in the proportion which the number of such male citizens shall bear to the whole number of male citizens twenty-one years of age in such state section three no person shall be a senator or representative in congress or elector of president and vice-president or hold any office civil or military under the united states or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress, or as an officer of the United States, or as a member of any state legislature, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state, to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each House, remove such disability. Section 4. The validity of the public debt of the United States, authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment of pensions and bounties for services in suppressing insurrection or rebellion, shall not be questioned. But the United States shall neither assume nor pay any debt or obligation incurred in aid of insurrection or rebellion against the United States, or any claim for the loss or emancipation of any slave. But all such debts, obligations, and claims shall be held illegal and void. Section 5 the Congress shall have power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article it may here be stated that the restoration of the late confederate states to all the rights and privileges of states as co-equal members of the Union under the plan of President johnson received the approval of the executive and judicial branches of the government soon after the cessation of hostilities congress however not only withheld its assent but during its session in eighteen sixty six required as a condition precedent to a recognition of any one of these states and the admission of its representatives and senators to seats, the adoption by its legislature of the above-mentioned amendment. The question really involved in this amendment was the admission to the citizenship and ballot of the Negroes in the states. It was the acknowledged fact that the authority to determine this question resided in the states severally and nowhere else. The amendment itself, in its second section, recognize the authority to grant or withhold the elective franchise as existing in the state governments. This amendment was submitted to the legislatures of the states immediately after its adoption by Congress in June 1866, and by March thirtieth eighteen 1867, it had been ratified by 20 states, including West Virginia, Maryland, Missouri, and Tennessee, and rejected by 13, including Delaware and Kentucky, and 11 of the late Confederate states. There were 34 states at that time, and 30 had voted. A ratification by three-fourths was required to make it valid when this amendment was presented for ratification to the legislature of virginia at its session commencing december eighteen sixty six it was rejected in the senate by a unanimous vote and in the house by a vote of seventy four to one meantime the freedmen's bureau was organized and put in operation in the state but the military occupation continued and the condition of affairs remained unchanged during the proceedings of congress to construct its plan for subjugation after the vote of the states up to march eighteen sixty seven it was manifest that no real advance had been made in the extension of the franchise to the negro population of the states in this position of affairs congress on march second adopted an entirely new system of measure relative to the late confederate states the fiction upon which these measures were based is thus expressed in the preamble of the first act. Whereas, no legal state government or adequate protection for life or property now exists in the rebel states of Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Florida, Texas, and Arkansas, and whereas it is necessary that peace and good order should be enforced in said states until loyal and Republican state governments can be legally established, Therefore, be it enacted, etc. These states were then divided into five military districts, and it was further provided, until the people of the said rebel states shall by law be admitted to representation to the Congress of the United States, all civil governments that may exist therein shall be deemed provisional only, and shall be, in all respects, subject to the paramount authority of the United States, at any time to abolish, modify, control, and supersede the same, and in all elections to any office under such provisional governments, all persons shall be entitled to vote under the provision of the fifth section of this Act. Thus, these states, when held by military force as conquered territory, with the sovereignty of the people extinct, were not allowed to claim to possess any rights under the Federal Constitution or any other than such as might be granted by the will of the conqueror. It was asserted that the right to regulate the elective franchise— recognized as belonging to the states in the union could not attach to those out of the union having only provisional political institutions congress then proceeded to declare in the fifth section of the bill the terms upon which a late confederate state could become a member of the union section five that when the people of any one of said rebel states shall have formed a constitution of government in conformity with the constitution of the united states in all respects framed by a convention of delegates elected by the male citizens of said state twenty-one years old and upward of whatever race color or previous condition who have been resident in said state for one year previous to the day of such election except such as may be disenfranchised for participation in the rebellion or for felony at common law and when such constitution shall provide that the elective franchise shall be enjoyed by all such persons as having the qualification herein stated for electors of delegates and when such constitution shall be ratified by a majority of the persons voting on the question of ratification who are qualified as electors for delegates, and when such constitution shall have been submitted to Congress for examination and approval, and Congress shall have approved the same, and when said state, by a vote of its legislature elected under said constitution, shall have adopted the amendment to the Constitution of the United States proposed by the thirty-ninth Congress, known as Article 14, and when said article shall have become a part of the Constitution of the United States, the State shall be declared entitled to representation in Congress, and Senators and Representatives shall be admitted therefrom on their taking the oath prescribed by law, and then and thereafter the preceding sections of this Act shall be inoperative in said State, etc. The bill became law, notwithstanding the veto of the President. On March 4th, a new Congress commenced its session, and on March 23rd, a supplement to the preceding act was passed. It ordered a registration to be made of the qualified voters in each military subdistrict of the state, an election to be held for the state convention to draft a constitution for the state, and for delegates to such convention, and that such constitution should be submitted to the voters for adoption or rejection, and upon its adoption a state government should be organized, etc., the registration was required to be made of all citizens as defined by the Act to protect all persons in the United States and their civil rights, etc. Many disqualifications of voters arising from participation in the war were also expressed. This Act also became law, notwithstanding the objections of the President. It will be seen that this Act contemplated two distinct governments in each of the ten states, one military and the other civil. Both were provisional, and both were to continue until the new state constitution was framed and the state was admitted to representation in Congress. The two were to be carried on together, and the people were made subject to both and obliged to obey both. The law was next put in operation by constituting the districts as follows. 1. Virginia, Commander, Major General Schofield. 2. North Carolina and South Carolina, Commander, Major General Sickles. 3. Georgia, Florida, and Alabama, Commander, Major General John Pope. 4. Mississippi and Arkansas, Commander, Major General Ord. 5. Louisiana and Texas, Commander, Major General Sheridan. Previous to adjournment on July 19, 1867, Congress passed an additional supplement to the Act of March 3rd and the Supplement of March 23rd. It declared the intent and meaning of the previous acts to have been that the civil governments of the ten states were not legal governments, and, if continued, were to be subject in all respects to the military commanders and the paramount authority of Congress. It made the acts of the military commanders subject only to the disapproval of the General of the Army, U.S. Grant, and authorized them to remove any person from office under the state government. It further defined the classes disfranchised and directed that no district commander should be bound in his action by any opinion of any civil officer of the United States. The President vetoed the bill, and in his message said, Thus, over all these ten states, this military government is now declared to have unlimited authority. It is no longer confined to the preservation of the public peace, the administration of criminal law, the registration of voters, and the superintendence of elections, but in all respects, is asserted to be paramount to the existing civil governments. It is impossible to conceive any state of society more intolerable than this, and yet it is to this condition that twelve millions of American citizens are reduced by the Congress of the United States. Over every foot of the immense territory occupied by these American citizens, the Constitution of the United States is theoretically in full operation. It binds all the people there and should protect them, yet they are denied every one of its sacred guarantees of what avail will it be to any one of these southern people when seized by a file of soldiers to ask for the cause of arrest or for the protection of the warrant of what avail to ask for the privilege of bail when in military custody which knows no such thing as bail of what avail to demand a trial by jury process for witnesses a copy of the indictment the privilege of counsel or that greater privilege the writ of habeas corpus congress having thus completed its plan of operations the crashing wheels of subjugation began to move forward let us proceed with the narration of affairs in virginia on the appearance of major general schofield at richmond all the proceedings of the so-called civil government for the organization and restoration of the state to the union at once ceased and he assumed command a board of army officers was named by the commanding general for the purpose of selecting suitable persons for appointment as registering officers throughout the state. In making the selections, the preference was given, first, to officers of the army and of the Freedmen's Bureau on duty in the state, second, to persons who had been discharged from the Federal Army after meritorious service during the war, third, to loyal citizens of the country or city where they were to serve, on April 2nd, an order appeared from the Major General suspending all elections, whether state, county, or municipal, under the provisional government, until after the registration was completed. A lecture on the Chivalry of the South, advertised to be delivered in Lynchburg, was suppressed by the order of the post commander at that place. A warning was given by the Major General to the editor of the Richmond Times, which said, The efforts of your paper to foster enmity, create disorder, and lead to violence can no longer be tolerated. On the refusal of five magistrates of the Corporation Council of Norfolk to receive the testimony of a Negro, they were arrested on a process issued under the Civil Rights Bill, and held to bail to appear before the district court. All armed organizations in the states were disbanded. Inflammatory meetings of freedmen and those who sought their political alliance were held in different parts of the state. Military commissioners were appointed over sub-districts for the suppression of disorder and violence, for the protection of all persons and their so-called rights of person and property, and clothed with all the powers of justices of a county or police magistrates of a city. The state was also divided into sub-districts, and commanders appointed over the same. These officers were empowered to exercise a general supervision over the military commissioners and to furnish them when necessary with sufficient military force to enable them to discharge their duties. Further orders relative to the qualification of voters were issued by the Major-General, in which it was declared that all persons who voluntarily joined the rebel army, and all persons in that army, whether volunteers or conscripts, who committed voluntarily any hostile act, were thereby engaged in insurrection or rebellion, and all who voted for the ordinance of succession gave aid and comfort to the enemy." Also, all who voluntarily furnished supplies of food or clothing, arms, ammunition, horses or mules, or any other material of war participated in the rebellion and were disfranchised. The whole number registered was 116,982 whites and 104,772 blacks. The vote for the convention was 14,835 whites and 92,507 blacks against the Convention 61,249 Whites and 638 Blacks. The Convention assembled on December 3rd and adjourned on April seventeenth, 1868. The Bill of Eights adopted declared that the State shall ever remain a member of the United States of America and the people thereof a part of the American nation in all attempts, from whatever source and upon whatever pretext, to dissolve said union, or to sever said union, are unauthorized, and ought to be resisted with the whole power of the state. The Constitution of the United States and the laws of Congress, passed in pursuance thereof, constitute the supreme law of the land, to which paramount allegiance and obedience are due from every citizen, anything in the Constitution, ordinances, or laws of any state, to the contrary, notwithstanding. Suffrage was granted to every male citizen 21 years of age all officers of the state were required to take the following oath. I, blank, blank, do solemnly swear that I will support and maintain the Constitution and laws of the United States and the Constitution and laws of the state of Virginia, and that I recognize and accept the civil and political equality of all men before the law, etc. In addition, all state, city, and county officers were required to take the test oath prescribed by Congress on July 2, 1862, as follows i do solemnly swear that i have never borne arms against the united states since i have been a citizen thereof that i have voluntarily given no aid countenance counsel or encouragement to persons engaged in armed hostility thereto that i have never sought or accepted nor attempted to exercise the function of any office whatever under any authority or pretended authority in hostility to the united states that i have not yielded a voluntary support to any pretended government authority power or constitution within the united states hostile or inimical thereto and i do further swear that to the best of my knowledge and ability i will support and defend the constitution of the united states against all enemies foreign and domestic that i will bear true faith and allegiance to the same that i will take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion and that i will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which i am about to enter Major General Schofield, in an address to the Convention in opposition to these stringent provisions, said, You cannot find in some of these counties a sufficient number of men who are capable of filling the offices and who can take the oath you have prescribed here. I have no hesitation in saying that I believe it impossible to inaugurate a government upon this basis. Meanwhile, the so-called Constitution was adopted by the Convention, and June 2nd fixed for the popular vote upon it but no appropriation was made for the expenses of the election and it was not held major general stoneman now succeeded major general Schofield. the utter subjugation of the sovereign people of virginia was now manifest not a public act of the least importance could they do without the consent of the military chief who ruled over them and who was a stranger in their state finding the provisions of this constitution were so restrictive as to exclude from the elective franchise nearly all of the most intelligent and best educated citizens on account of their participation in the late war, a movement was commenced for a modification of these clauses or their entire omission. The sovereignty of the people was extinct, so no relief could be secured except through the action of the sovereign sitting in Washington. Congress therefore passed an act authorizing the President, Grant, at such a time as he might deem best, to submit the Constitution to the registered voters of Virginia and also submit to a separate vote such provisions of the Constitution as he thought proper. The Act also required the legislature that should be elected to ratify the 14th and 15th Amendments to the Constitution of the United States as a condition precedent to the readmission of the state into the Union. The 15th Article of the Amendment to the Constitution was passed by Congress in February 1869 and submitted to the legislatures of the states. It was as follows. Section 1. The rights of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Section 2. The Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. On the passage of the amendment by the United States Senate, Senator Garrett Davis of Kentucky said, Sir, your amendments to the Constitution are all void. They are of no effect. They were proposed by a mutilated Congress. They were proposed by a mutilated House of Representatives and Senate. The election in Virginia took place on July sixth, 1869. The vote on the Constitution was, for it, 206,233, against it, 9,189. For the disfranchising clause, 84,404, against it, 124,361. In favor of the Test Oath Clause, the votes were 83,114, against it 124,106. State officers and a legislature were chosen. Meantime, the civil or provisional governor had been removed by the military commander, Major General Stoneman, and the commander of the 1st District put in the vacancy. At the same time, the President-Judge of the Supreme Court of Appeals was a staff officer of the general commanding and assigned to that duty and another one of the judges of that court was an officer of the Federal Army receiving his appointment from the same source. On October 5th, the legislature assembled, the state officers-elect having already entered upon their duties. The 14th and 15th Amendments to the United States Constitution were adopted and senators elected to Congress. On January 26th, 1870, a bill for the admission of the state into the Union without further condition was passed. Her subjugation was now completed. The military commanders were withdrawn, and she was left in the hands of carpetbaggers. End of Section 49